0: Well, good morning, everyone. (laughs) That was so cool about the Pregnancy Center. Aaron Rogers has been a very good friend of Linda and I for many years. Uh, Her and her husband, Brett, we were all, this is going back quite a ways, we were all in the same college career group at this church and um, a number of other people besides Aaron are also involved in full-time ministry still to this day from that group so for those of you who don't know me i'm Vance Furtado i'm a volunteer teaching pastor here at resurrection church and i am so thrilled that i get to bring you god's word today so we're going to take a look at the last six verses of ephesians chapter 2 So I invite you to go there in your Bibles, whether you have it on a phone or a printed version, or if you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. We're going to call this uh, immeasurable transforming wealth, because that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, these six verses from 17 to 22 are about. It's also very much what all of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 so far about about this transforming uh, spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. Um, Before we get into this scripture, I wanna start off with a little story, if I might. It's about a fellow named Henry Comstock, and he had a bit of a tragic life, and sadly, he had no one to blame but himself. Henry Comstock was a drifter, a former fur trapper, and a near-do-well miner. He managed to argue his way into a mining claim a little ways outside of what we know today as the city of Reno, Nevada. It didn't seem like the mining claim was gonna pay out though, and so Comstock sold out, 1859, for $11,000. That was a pretty good chunk of change back in 1859. However, the claim turned out to be the Comstock load the richest silver strike in American history. Before the Comstock load finally tapped out, over $400 million of silver and gold came out of it. Henry Comstock had cheated himself. He never saw most of that wealth, even though it was named after him. Now in Ephesians, we have been surveying, and I have to emphasize the word surveying because... We're doing the best we can, but we're just barely scratching the surface of the spiritual wealth in this letter. But we have been surveying the enormous riches of our great salvation in Christ, but unless we allow what Paul has been telling us to sink in, we'll be just like Henry Comstock, getting some benefit of salvation, but not really transformed by what Paul is writing in this letter. The fact that, as he told us back, way back at chapter one, verse three, that we have every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. All right, let's review just a little bit because this is gonna be the last message, excuse me, message in Ephesians chapter two. And so let me back up a little bit. First of all, chapter two, verses one to three, there should be a slide on this now. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we have been dealing with our condition before Christ, that we were spiritually dead. And then chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, we saw God's intervention by Christ, but God, how he stepped in and basically changed our eternal destiny. And then chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, we saw, and this is what Pastor Daniel was telling us about last week, that the hostility was gone and that we are now new people in christ and that dealt with the idea of reconciliation now we will be exploring in verses 17 to 22 three examples of the immeasurable transforming wealth available to us in jesus so verse 17 that's going to be the fact that peace is proclaimed in christ Verse 18, that access is provided in Christ. And then number three, new status, this is verses 19 to 22, new status is created for us via Christ, all right? So let's go ahead and read the scriptures. I'm going to actually start reading at verse 11, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Um. But what I'm actually going to talk about begins at verse 17. But let's go ahead, start reading to get the context, verse 11. Here we go. Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in flesh, the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new person, in this way establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the hostility. And this is what we're going to cover this morning, beginning at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. All right. Let's go back and take a look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace. Way back at verse 15 of chapter 2, there was no peace. There was only hostility between gentiles versus Jews and Pastor Daniel explained how there was no love loss between these two groups between God's also absolute righteousness in the law versus man's sinfulness so there was this constant state of tension constant state of turmoil and then Jesus brought peace Now, if you take a look again at this passage that we just read, four times Paul uses the word peace. Each time it is something that Jesus brings. But there's an issue here. Notice in verse 17 it says, he proclaimed peace to you who were far away. That's the issue. Because the people who are far away would be in most of us, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, And the deal is this, Jesus did not focus his earthly ministry upon the Gentiles. As he said at one point in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he said, and he was talking to a Gentile woman, he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when did Jesus proclaim through the gospel peace to folks like us? The answer is after his resurrection and ascension. If you remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 Go to Galilee, I will appear to you there. And some 500 of them, near as we can tell, went to Galilee, and the Lord came to them in Matthew 28, 18, and he said, look, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make, what? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, and behold, I am with you always, always, to the end of the earth he wasn't physically present he was spiritually present and he is still present today in his church proclaiming peace likewise just before he ascended leaving the mount of olives acts chapter 1 verse 8 therefore you will be my witnesses unto Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the ends of the earth. That's the commission of the church, and Jesus's presence is with us as we carry out that commission. That's really, guys, what missions is all about, okay? Whether it is something happening when we support ministries like the pregnancy center or the rescue mission, or whether we are supporting missionaries in this country or in other countries, it's still Jesus is proclaiming peace as we are being obedient and sharing the gospel with others. The mission goes on. Without Christ, there is no peace. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 says this, but the wicked, are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What if someone trusts in Christ? Paul wrote in Romans chapter five, verses one and two, he wrote this, therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have, what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Do you have peace with God? Unless you know Jesus, you don't. He is the only one who provides us peace and a relationship with God. So, the first part, first example of this immeasurable great wealth we have in Christ is Jesus proclaims peace. Example number two of the wealth, we have access provided in Christ. That's verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus, We both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Did you catch all three members of the Trinity are mentioned there? All three of them have a part to play in our salvation. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but it was the Father's plan to set him there, and then after Jesus ascended and went back to his Father, it is the Holy Spirit himself that infills us and lets us know that we are indeed children of God. They're all involved. It's interesting, the Greek word there, that in our Bibles is translated access, it's used elsewhere to describe how a palace official controlled access into the presence of a king. In other words, you just didn't simply march up to the throne room of the king and say, hey, I want to go in, I want to talk to the king. Mm No, You go through the intermediary first. Whether he's called chief minister, major domo, head honcho, big cheese, whatever it is, you go through that guy. And then you have access to the father. Likewise, If you wanted to be able to access the presence of a God, you had to go through the priest. Jesus is our high priest. According to the book of Hebrews, which really teaches and expands upon this idea, although Paul does talk about it as well in terms of Jesus interceding for us, which is what a priest would do, but it's in Hebrews, for example, Hebrews chapter, where is it? Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it says this Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For a long time, when I would read that in my Bible, I would think throne of grace, I would actually picture a throne. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Okay, I'm going to go back a ways, but how many of us have seen the first Indiana Jones movie? Okay, quite a few of us, all right? You remember the movie was all about Indiana Jones finds the lost ark, okay? And now it's hidden someplace in a warehouse somewhere in the United States, sorry, it's not, okay? It's long gone. But on that replica, which is actually fairly authentic that they built for their movie thing, it had a big plate of gold with the carved angels, the serabine, on top of it, looking down at this plate of gold. That is the throne of grace. That is the mercy seat. Because once a year, the high priest on the day of atonement would enter the most holy room, the holy place, most holy place, the holy of holies, and would sprinkle the blood of a goat signifying a sin offering on that mercy seat, on that throne of grace and the sins would be covered for another year. Not dealt with permanently but through Jesus, our high priest the sin issue is permanently removed. That's why we can you better say amen, you better believe it. (laughs) That's why we can go boldly into the very presence of God because Jesus' blood gives us access. Have you been seeking God? If you are, and I hope you are, there's only one way that it's going to work, and that's if you seek God through Jesus. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. There is salvation under no one else because it is only through Christ that we are saved. You know, there's a story. I had to check it out because it exists in several different forms, and I hope it's true because it's such a cool story. So let me share it with you. Back during the time of the Civil War, There was a soldier in the Union Army. His father was killed in battle. His older brother was killed in battle. He was the last surviving man in his immediate family, and his mother and his sister had written to him begging for him to come home to help them on the family farm. Now the only person who could give this soldier an exemption to return to civilian life was President Lincoln. So the soldier requested leave, he got it, he went to the White House in Washington, D.C., and he was rebuffed. He never even got into the building. They said, just get away. The president is extremely busy. After all, you know, he's trying to run a war. So the soldier, very sadly, sat down on a bench a short ways from the White House. When along came this boy, about eight years old, noticed this soldier looking very, very sad, And so the boy came up to him and said, soldier, why are you so sad? And the soldier figured, well, I don't have anything else to do. So he tells the little boy what's going on. And the boy squares back his shoulders and he says, you know what? I'll get you in to see the president. Come with me. Okay. He walks and follows the little boy. The little boy goes through the White House doors. The guards don't say anything. The soldier just looks and he follows. The boy goes upstairs to the private living area and the office of President Lincoln and the soldier just follows. There's a long list of people waiting outside the president's office to see him. The boy walks past all of them, the soldier follows. Finally, the boy goes into President Lincoln's office where he is meeting with the Secretary of State going over the war. The president looks up and says, smiles and says, what is it, Thad? And the boy says, Daddy? This soldier needs to talk to you. He had access. That's what Jesus gives us. All right? Okay, let's go to number three. We're going to spend most of our time on this one, or at least a lot of time, and that is the third example of our wealth in Christ is that we have new status created for us in Christ. So let's take a look now Verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. We'll pause there for a second. That's our old status. Strangers, we think of that like tourists. All right? Somebody that's just simply visiting a country. When I used to travel and teach in Uganda from 1997 to 2015, the most powerful piece, the most important piece of documentation I kept on me all the time unless I was on the compound was my passport. If I went into town to do some shopping, if I needed to visit somebody off compound, that passport went with me. Because if I lost that thing, I couldn't get out of the country. You need a passport. We were tourists before we came to Jesus. We were also foreigners. Foreigners are resident aliens. Think of somebody that has a work visa. They don't granted permanent access to the country, they don't have all the rights of somebody who has citizenship in a country, but they're allowed to work there and then they had to pay taxes. That's our old status. Paul expanded on this a little further earlier when he said we were without hope, without God, outside the covenants of promise. We didn't have diddly squat. That's our old status. But in Christ, everything changes. So then, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens our citizenship is in God's kingdom our city will be the new jerusalem you want to find out what our city's like read revelation 21:22 you're going to love it paul tells us in philippians chapter 3 verse 20 But uh, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if our citizenship is in heaven and we are citizens of the King, I guess we ought to act like citizens of heaven, shouldn't we? We shouldn't look the same as other people around us. We are called to be salt and light in this world. This world is not our home, is it? Paul tells us the next thing that's true about us is that We are of, verse 19, God's household. What's the big deal about that? In the ancient world, a household was more than just mom, dad, brother, and sister. It was everybody that wasn't just related to you, but you were all part of the same extended group. You got your identity from your household. You got your sense of belonging from your household. You got your sense of stability from your household. Think back in Genesis chapter 14. Remember the story when Lot got himself in trouble because Lot was stupid? <laughs> First, he lived near the bad city of Sodom, and next thing we know, he's living inside Sodom. Bad idea. A war comes along, Saul, uh, excuse me, not Saul, but Lot ends up getting captured, and Abraham, his uncle, has to go rescue him. Now that would have been some picture, a 75-year-old man rescuing his nephew from an army, but the deal is this. Abraham called out all the members of his household. We're told, Genesis 14, 14, he had 318 trained warriors of his household. He had a small army. God blessed their effort. He was able to rescue Lot and the other people. But the point is, we are all, through Jesus, members now of the household of God. And you know how we became members of his household? We were adopted. That's why we're told, John 1, 12, For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. What's the evidence of our adoption in Christ? The presence of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, the best thing is the last thing, beginning at verse 20. And that is, we are now God's new dwelling through the Spirit. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In the Greek language, they have two different words for temple. One word referred to basically the whole complex, the massive building that a temple would have. And the city of Ephesus, which of course, this is the letter was sent to the city of Ephesus, it had one of the largest temples that ever existed in the ancient world. It was called one of the eight wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. You may remember, Acts chapter 19, where the Christians and the ministry of Paul was making so much spiritual headway in the city of Ephesus, so many people were coming to the Lord, that a riot broke out in the city of Ephesus, and the silversmiths who made these little bitty statues of the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians and sold them, sort of like people sell stuff outside the Super Bowl, anyway. They were losing business, because nobody was buying their little cute statues, their little bobbleheads anymore. <laughs> so they started a riot. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It fizzled out eventually. The gospel went forward. But there was this huge temple in Ephesus, 450 feet long, a football field and a half. 60 feet high pillars. And by the way, nothing of it exists anymore, just a few scattered rocks, it's gone. But Paul isn't using that word to refer to a massive temple, which the Ephesians would have known about their temple. They were, a lot of them were very proud of it before they came to Christ. Paul's using another word, naos. Naos is not the big, big building. Naos is the little Tiny building where you would have the statue of Artemis of the Ephesians. By the way, it was ugly, okay? Looked like it had about 40, 50 tumors growing out of its torso. It was like, what? You worship this? But in the Old Testament, which is where Paul's coming from, the naos was where God dwelt. It's where his presence was. And in the case of the tabernacle, and in the case of Solomon's temple, God's very Shekinah glory descended on those buildings and his very glory and presence went into the Holy of Holies. That's why the high priest could only go into that room once a year. You were stepping into the very presence of God and you better be careful. That was in the Old Testament. Come to the New Testament, God's glory dwelt inside the Holy of Holies, but in the New Testament, according to John 1.14, God's glory dwelt in Jesus. The Word became flesh, and we saw His glory, John tells us in John 1.14. But now... Paul's telling us here, it's in God's temple, the church, through the spirit, that God's glory is being manifested, being shown to an unbelieving world. Peter develops this idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Here's what he wrote. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's us, folks. That's who we are. Now what's beautiful if you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see that everything that Peter's writing here describing the church was also terms used to describe Israel. It doesn't mean the church supersedes Israel. We don't. But it means the spiritual blessings that was for Israel have now also come upon the church during this time. This is who we are. Now, two important facts as we come back to Ephesians About the church, God's present temple in the world. First of all, notice who our cornerstone is Jesus. Everything about the church must be centered on Jesus, the cornerstone. In the ancient world, by far the most important stone you laid would be the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, verses that Jesus quoted about himself. He said, and the psalmist says, a stone with the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Not only is Jesus our cornerstone, but also notice, and this is cool, we're a work in progress. You notice the verbs Paul's using here? Being built together, being fitted together. By the way, being fitted together, Paul, he made up that word himself, it doesn't exist before Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So he made up a word to try to describe what God is doing. The point is, is being fitted together, being built together, notice they're passives. We're not doing the building, we're not doing the fitting. God's doing it. He's making us. It is the Lord that's putting his body, the church, together. Now, by the way, those old temples they had back then, the biggest stone, foundation stone they ever found in the temple in Jerusalem, which of course, you know, they still have the foundation of that temple. Part of it, built by Herod the Great, some of it, though, dates clear back to the time of King Solomon. The biggest stone, 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide. It about filled this stage, but if we ever actually put a stone that big on this stage, it would collapse because all I'm standing on up here, guys, is plywood. It weighed 570 tons. we are going to be built and put together up until the Lord returns. Oh, one other thing. If we took a time machine back to the time of Solomon and actually saw the temple being built, which would have been really cool, you would not have heard a hammer, a chisel, any kind of stonemason tools. No. Because every one of those stones in that temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, was cut precisely, moved to the temple, and then like a massive 3D jigsaw puzzle, they were moved into place. They were moved into place so closely that even to this day, you can't slip a knife between some of those pieces. They are fitted together that closely. And then, when Jesus comes back, the work is done. That's why John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are now children of God. That deals with that whole idea of adoption. And it has not yet appeared what we yet will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. You ever wonder how Jesus would just appear in a room and then go back? Wouldn't that be cool to do that? Pee-boo. <laughs> when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now here's where this gets practical. Are you part of God's dwelling place? How are you fitting in? Now you might feel like, well I feel like I'm a pebble in somebody's shoe. You're not a pebble. Each and every one of us has a place, has something contribute to the work of God. Each and every one of us has a gift, has resources, has a contribution we can make of ourselves to further God's kingdom. You know, it's interesting, about six, seven years ago, Japan, which, as you guys know, has a lot of earthquakes, well, they had a bad one in this one Japanese city, and it destroyed much of a beautiful castle that the people of the city dearly loved. It's called Kunamoto, yeah, Kunamoto Castle, and the people of this Japanese city wanted to rebuild their castle, but... They didn't want to build it out of modern materials. They wanted to rebuild it to the way it would be looked and it would be put together like it had been of old. The problem was this. Part of the foundation that was over 400 years old had been destroyed. So what these people did, get this, they took the 20,000 plus stones of the foundation of the castle and they numbered every single one of them. And then they put the stones Together. It took them years, but they reassembled that foundation exactly like it had been put together 400 years ago. Now, what's the point of that? The point is this we're God's building, we're the dwelling of God's Spirit, we're manifesting Christ to this world. Each and every one of us, according to Peter, are living stones each and every one of us has a contribution to make to God's work. Now, I may be stoned 15,718 and you may be stoned 5,128. But we all need each other. We all have a place. So, some concluding thoughts as we wrap up our message. Three questions. Going back over what we've just learned. Number one, are you experiencing peace with God? That is the most important issue. If you do not know Jesus, you need to. Because it's only through Him you can have peace with God. He takes care of our sins. We can't do that ourselves. He does that when we come to Him. Number two, are you pursuing access? to God's presence. Again, that's only through Jesus. He is our high priest. If you have something you're struggling with, come to him. Number three, how are you part of God's dwelling place, his church? If something's holding you back from serving the Lord, you need to give that up. You need to take your place serving the Lord. We're going to have a time where if you want to come forward for prayer, I'm going to invite you to do that. We'll have some of our elders and pastors down here. You need to pray with somebody, you come on down. We'll pray with you. God bless.